thank you for clicking and thank you for listening to Policing Matters, the Police One podcast. I'm Doug Wiley. Hi, this is Jim Dudley. Jim, one of the trends we've seen over the course of the last probably 10 years or so, maybe a little bit more, is a vastly increased usage of heroin on our streets. And that goes in urban as well as rural environments. It's, it's pretty much become pervasive. According to a report from the CDC last year, in uh, the span between 2002 and 2013, overdoses uh, have increased 286% in that decade. Um, in that report, I found it interesting that you know the abusers of Vicodin, uh, Oxycontin, and morphine are 40 times more likely to use heroin once they're off of that prescription or it becomes unavailable to them. And that further, they had a note that um, the most at-risk individuals are between the ages of 18 and 25 white males who earn $20,000 a year or less and have no health insurance. Um, you know, of course, we know that the risk factors of this, this drug are obviously needle-driven, you know, the HIV, the hepatitis C, hepatitis B, but you know, the most you know, kind of important, if you will, health risk is overdose and death. Um, and so a lot of officers across the country are being um, asked to carry by their departments these Narcan kits. Um, you know, it's had implications, of course, you know, lives have been saved in places like Michigan, Ohio, New York, and Pennsylvania. That's just from a very quick Google search. But, you know, we're, we're, we're asking our cops to do more and more stuff. And um, the consequences of that are, you know, kind of far reaching. You want to maybe dig into that a little bit? Sure. No, absolutely. Uh, unequivocally, the heroin and opiate based uh, drugs are uh, a problem in America. That's that's no question. People are dying uh, of heroin and opioid drug um, infused, um, sometimes prescription drugs, uh, killing as many as 78 Americans a day, according to the Center for Disease Control. So you have those numbers. It is a serious problem. Uh, clearly, uh, it's on the rise. Uh, it's not just from the illegal heroin, but prescription drugs, sometimes uh, illegally sold or obtained prescription drugs, but oftentimes prescription drugs that are prescribed to uh, alleviate pain. Uh, it's, it's such a problem that uh, President Obama went to, um, just this month, uh, a, a, a conference of uh, AMA professionals who talked about the problem. And I know Congress wanted to to make laws that would actually limit uh, the the over prescribing, if you will, of uh, opiate based uh, drugs. But um, the president um, falls just short of agreeing with that. And I disagree with the president, <laughs> not the first time. <laughs> but um, I, I think more importantly, you alluded it to a little bit that I believe, and I've said it before, that this is another example of mission creep. You have uh, the police, um, law enforcement, having another social problem laid at their doorstep and being asked to respond, in addition to the myriad of other duties that law enforcement's supposed to handle. So we, we, we tend to drift a little bit, and it dilutes the primary mission of law enforcement. Certainly, Life-saving is, is one part of our mission, but now administering drugs uh, to save overdose victims. Um, we talked a little bit about this, and I agree that in, in rural areas where you don't have uh, such high numbers of uh, first responders, medical, fire, and police, um, they might be spread out over many, many miles, that, yeah, 
equip, train, and, and give every first responder the uh, capability to respond with this life-saving antidote. But in inner cities or more populated areas where it's a jump ball of who gets there first, I, I don't believe that we take another week of training in a police academy, uh, other in-service hours, and train law enforcement officers to do physical assessments uh, once they determine that there's an overdose present, that they de then administer uh, Narcan. They, actually, I think that's a trade name for naloxone, uh, the, the anti-opiate um, um, antidote. So um, yes, it's needed, but, but is it asking uh, law enforcement officers to do yet another task that I'm sure uh, they could be criticized for? down the road. Yeah, well, you know, and in, in researching the topic, you know, uh, leading up to our conversation, it, it, it appeared to me that the cops who were testifying in a particular video, um, having had saved, you know, lives, two, two different uh, officers interviewed in New York, I believe, you know, it's clear that they were quite proud of their achievement, but I think also they were, um, they were cherry picked, you know, in order to make this, this video look you know, this very favorable towards uh, you know the the producers of this Narcan product, sure. and you know it was it, it, it appeared to me I could be wrong. I'm just my perception of their of their interviews, but it, it appeared to me that they were the, you know it was the classic of the, the guy holding his thumb underneath his finger when uh, pr pictured with the then I think Secretary of State Clinton. Um, you know, I think that they, they were presenting their case that they were proud of their achievement, but I think also they felt like it was like you'd said another thing that they're doing. Yeah, and um, yes, it does save lives. Uh, yes, there have been examples, but but again, I think we're taking the wrong approach to a problem uh, when we we advocate a harm reduction uh, policy when it comes to public health. So yes, we do allow uh, chronic drunks to drink in houses mm -hmm. that are maintained by the government. Yes, we allow people to shoot up with injectable drugs at houses paid for by uh, the public's expense. Uh, yes, we uh, give out free needles. I, I do believe those things are necessary in order to bring down epidemics like mm -hmm. um, HIV and hepatitis and, and some of the other um, uh, ailments that you mentioned that, that you get from shared needles. So right. we, we shouldn't be confiscating needles from people, but I don't think we, we should get to the point where we advocate and facilitate to the epidemic proportions that we have today. And I think by doing this, by just adding another layer of facilitation, that you have officers that will be scrutinized down the road of why didn't they do an assessment fast enough? Why didn't they administer it fast enough? Why did they wait for um, uh, the medical people to come? And the Narcan is available. I think we talked about it before where it is available to uh, users of opiates themselves, to their families, to people who have prescription uh, opiates so that they can have it as sort of their EpiPen, their, their, their EpiPen to, to administer in case of an overdose, an un, unintentional overdose. But now, I mean, here in California, we have this uh, another epidemic of, of what they're calling suicide uh, overdoses of heroin and opiates in our California prisons. And so, so now what? And, and, and the CDCR, the California Department of uh, Corrections and Rehabilitation, are being criticized 
for searching their own employees and for searching visitors. So it's a real problem. I think we got to stem it and 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 halt it at at the where it flows from from doctors who overprescribe it for uh, people with uh, chronic complaints that doctor shop that get two or three prescriptions at the same time. And I, I think we have to be more prudent from from the, the beginning of, of distribution. From the preventative aspect as opposed to the responsive aspect of it. Um, you know, the, the, and the, you know, as you'd mentioned, you know, it's a prescription drug available to a, a variety of people who probably are really best. I mean, they're on scene and on site right, right, right then and there. You know, it's a person's parents, relatives, aunts, uncles. Um, or the individual themselves. I mean, my my fear with that is that what you wind up doing is is creating a, even further use of of the heroin in particular because they kind of have a safety net. They kind of have, as you said, that that epipen or that that preventative. You know, I'm going to take this as far as I can, right up to it, and, and, and including potentially lethal use. But I've got this ability to kind of bail back out and, and, and save myself. So it's I, I I do I have kind of mixed feelings about that. To be honest with you, it it, it makes me kind of wonder about you know are we actually further enabling and, 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 you know, really hardcore abuse of this drug. Right. And again, I can't I can't stress enough that as a life saving measure, certainly we get it out there on the streets as much as possible. But to make it another primary mission of law enforcement and to lay another social problem on the feet of law enforcement, I, I just think it's it's a Poor strategy. Yeah, I think that, and you know, we've discussed the um, the for individual first aid kits before. I think that that's the kind of medical training and capability that is best suited for law enforcement because that gives you the the buddy care and self care. And if in the event that you're shot, stabbed, wounded, you know, you're taking um, gear like that with you on the street. I'm 100% in favor of that. But there's a very, 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 very small population of police officers who are going to need a Narcan uh, dose. I mean, that's just not the likelihood. You know, you don't have a self-care or buddy care capability with that with that particular kit. You have the self-aid, buddy aid type of capability when you're talking about, you know, quick clot or, you know, gauze bandages or, or you know, that type of um, life-saving tool. So that's where I think we should be focusing our, our life-saving resources in law sure. enforcement. And, and I think it's important to say that apparently there's no benefit to ingesting uh, and I think on the on the law enforcement distribution level, it's through a nasal spray, it not is. not through an intravenous injection. So, if narc there's no benefit from Narcan or Naloxone, then why not dispense it to as many people as you can? Why not put it in a break when an emergency kit on a wall? Why not put it out there so that it can be used by the general public? Right. Uh, why why add this to the quiver of law enforcement tools. Again, if you're out in the middle of nowhere, if you are in a sheriff's department with 500 miles between the next ambulance, fire truck, or other cops, then yeah, take it with you, and chances are it's gonna be used. But if you're in an inner city or a small town with lots of resources available, jump ball response time. I think by the time a law enforcement officer does their physical assessment check, and determines there is an overdose and they should administer, you probably have other uh, first responders on scene. So uh, great tool to have, but um, I don't think it should be incorporated into a law enforcement duty. 
Well, we're going to probably revisit this topic, especially the topic of heroin epidemic at, at some point during the uh, future. I think maybe we'll be looking next time at the supply side of the equation. Thank you for clicking and thank you for listening. This is Policing Matters, the Police One podcast. I'm Doug Wiley. Hi, this is Jim Dudley. Jim, one of the things that, whether or not you're just entering the police force or you've been on for 15 years and you're seeking to kind of move up, um, that concerns a lot of people is, particularly those who are strategic and and looking to uh, advance up the chain of command, is making themselves more promotable, making themselves more appealing um, in the promotions process or even the hiring process. And I contend that you know, having held you know, special positions or being on special teams, FTO, SWAT, what have you, doesn't necessarily make a person more appealing in the promotions process. What I think makes someone appealing is cultivating the knowledge, skills, and abilities that are on the job description of sergeant, if that's what you're going for, or lieutenant, if that's what you're going for, and giving yourself the um, experience one way or another that you've done some of the things in that job description or all of the things in the job description to some extent or another. So you are job ready on day one when you're promoted. You're not going to go to management school after you've been promoted to sergeant. You should have that capability before, right? Sure, absolutely. And I've had experience. Um, I've been fortunate in a, in a 2,000 person department to promote through the ranks from patrol to uh, investigations, a sergeant, uh, lieutenant, captain. Captain was our last civil service rank, and then I was appointed uh, commander and, and then finally deputy chief. Uh, and But I've also served and, and helped write uh, promotional tests for entry-level sergeant, lieutenant, uh, and captain positions. So I've got some familiarity. I've, I've served as a raider on oral boards. Um, and, and reviewing other materials outside in uh, places like uh, Baltimore and El Paso and uh, Columbus, Ohio on um, promotional boards there. So I feel like I have a pretty good idea of what to look for in a, in a candidate. But I think before all that, preparation is key. And whenever I teach a subject, I, I never start with the negatives. But in this case, I think it's important to to let people know um, what the defeatist attitude looks like. And you may not even realize that it's it's a defeatist attitude before a promotional, where you, whether you consider uh, at the very beginning, at the onset, that the sergeant's test is coming up or the lieutenant's test is coming up. And mental attitude really has a lot to do with it. So if you have a defeatist attitude, it's definitely um, against you. It works against you at the beginning. It, it's generally because you have a fear of the unknown. There's hesitation or indecision about taking on new responsibilities. Um, you may be reluctant to leave a comfort zone. Maybe you've got a great partner. Maybe you have a great assignment, a great shift, something that works well with you for your home life babysitting arrangement, your spouse works the same or opposite hours, right? Um, things where where it really helps you achieve balance at home as well. Um, the other issues are you may be unfamiliar with the process, uh, unfamiliar with the knowledge, skills, and abilities, which we call the KSAs, um, with, with different roles uh, beyond your current rank. 
uh, you might be unfamiliar with the specialization roles, roles in things that you don't normally do, like admin or SWAT or, or other special um, investigation um, uh, bureaus and things of, of that nature. Um, you might like to specialize in one area and ignore others. So maybe you are a, a PFL, Patrol for Life, or maybe you're an investigative uh, person. Maybe you are a narcotics officer and that's what you love and that's your calling and you're happy to be there. So those are things that'll, that'll um, sort of uh, hit you at a disadvantage at the onset. Um, I, I see a lot of other officers who have um, resisted promotion or took the test but didn't do well because they don't walk the walk or talk the talk. They, mm. In their life as, as a patrol officer, uh, they tend to cut corners. They tend to avoid extra training. They tend to avoid mandatory training and sometimes get in trouble for it. And, and sometimes they figure, hey, I'm just going to go in and wing it <laughs> and uh, see how I do. That's never a good idea. Or they overestimate their abilities. They ha they have a big ego, and they think they're they know it, and they're going to go in and do well. And uh, if that ever happens, it's pretty rare. And for someone to look at a, a list and come back and say, "Hey, I'm number three, and I didn't even study," yeah, I'm 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 checking the veracity on that statement. Yeah, you know, and I think it's it's important to note, and you you alluded to it, that it, it's okay to be patrol for life. If that's Absolutely. what you want to do, Absolutely. That's, if that's, as you said, if, if you found your calling and you you know you're going home rewarded every day that you've done you know, a tremendous job, then then there's no reason to even seek to promote, you know, but for the, for the, for the, I would say a great many officers out there who at least seek to, to, to make sergeant or, you know, they, they feel there's, you know, a lot of alpha dogs out there and they feel they can lead and they probably can, but they have to cultivate that leadership. You can't, you can't become a leader just by saying, follow me. I mean, in certain, certain cases, you certainly can. You know, if there's an active shooter and you're lined up and there's three guys out, you know, right behind you, follow me is the most important two words in the English language. But that's situational leadership. When you have talk about organizational leadership, it's a different thing. You need to actually educate yourself on you know the, the way in which people learn, the way in which people are, are are prone to be led. You know, there's different types of personalities, and that's not knowledge that just sort of appears in your head when you take and pass the promotional exam. These are things you have to actually pursue, oftentimes on your own time and your own dime, going to night school. Um, doing things like reading Police One, um, joining the Police One Academy, you know, bettering yourself and reading, reading kind of dry, tedious books on management and leadership. They're not a lot of fun. It's not Tom Clancy reading, but you, uh, you do gain a lot of abilities that you can then bring to the table. If it's the oral or if it's the examination, you have better skills than your peers, better capabilities and knowledge than your peers, and you will then succeed in achieving that promotion, right? Sure, absolutely. And, and you you bring up a good point where when people take the extra steps to take the extra steps and prepare, um, it becomes the issue of the, the chicken or the egg. The chicken or the egg, which came first? The person who hired a uh, coach, consultant, mentor, who paid for extra training, who volunteered for training at their uh, present assignment, who volunteered to lead groups, to lead explorers or cadets, um, to take upon supervisory roles. Um, did they do better on tests because they did those things or did they do better on tests because they do those things? You know what I mean? They get into a, um, a study group 
because that's their natural tendency to listen to other perspectives, learn from others, uh, bounce ideas off. Um, I think it, it all starts with the proper mindset that you go into a, a promotional exam with the idea that you're going to pull out all the stops, you're going to dedicate time, you're going to do the extra things that you need to do to be better than the guy next to you taking the test, right? It's like the bear, right? You and I are hiking in the woods and mm. we see a bear coming and I put my tennis shoes and you say, hey, you can't outrun the bear. And what do I say? You got to just outrun me. That's right. <laughs> That's right. I just have to outrun you. <laughs> yeah. So you have to be, you, you have to have that determination to succeed. It, it starts long before the test. Um, if they come out with a study manual, a list of the uh, requirements, the KSAs and things like that, you have to take those to heart. You have to go to your own department general orders, pull out the ones that apply to the, um, the stated objectives and goals on the test material. And then you have to start uh, framing your practice into the form that's on the announcement. So if they say it's going to be a panel of three people, you're going to have to do scenario-based uh, exercises, um, you're going to be rated in a high-stress situation, you've got to prepare by playing like you practice and practice like you're playing. So you've got, you, you can't uh, think up the, the format or, or try to conform to the format on the day of the test. I mean, it's too late to, to do it then. You know, and I've said this in, in this venue many times already, you know, when the time to perform arrives, the time to prepare has long since passed. Right. Um, I think one other thing that comes to mind as I think about this and think about the, the police leaders that I have known and seen, those who I find to be the most effective are either it's a nature or nurture situation. Like they have actively gone out to nurture themselves and created in, in themselves something better than they were, or they have this natural capability to, you know, like I said, the follow me thing, just the natural ability to lead, organize, manage, and in so being, they also try to cultivate themselves. That's sure. just, it, as you'd said, it's part of their, just their DNA is they're inherently curious. They constantly want to better themselves. They have a natural ability, but they, they go above and beyond that. Yeah. So there's that kind of, I think, the, 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 the two key pieces are the, the, the natural ability, but even if you don't have the natural ability, you can create it in yourself. You can develop it, absolutely. And I, and I was going to just counter with you to say, I don't believe there are natural born leaders, but I believe leadership is cultivated at the very earliest stages in, in your young life. And so if you are a seven-year-old on a soccer team and you rally the people and talk about strategy to the, the other kids on your team, or as you go up through high school, you join the debate team and you take on leadership roles there. Once you're an adult, you may overlook the fact that you've taken upon leadership roles throughout your life, but you don't you don't see them in that um, in that paradigm. I, I think what people what successful leaders do is model themselves after other proven leaders. Right? You see. Right the best leaders that you know, you choose to follow them, their modeling behavior that you are seeking. You seek them for advice, you seek them as mentors. But uh, for me, I remember, and I, believe me, I have two pages of, of items here that we're not gonna get to today. But one thing I did for sure was, for any test that I took, if I didn't have the skills, if they were my weakest skills, I would try to turn them into my strongest strengths. So for example, when I went from a sergeant to a, a lieutenant's position, I knew I knew nothing. I was, a, I was a PFL patrolman for life. I got into investigations 
And then when the lieutenant's test came out and they said they were going to have a tactical SWAT component, I froze. I had no tactical SWAT experience. But I looked for the people who led and were strong in those categories and sat down with them, listened to them, took them out for coffee. Uh, at the end of it all, I bought them a bottle or a gift card to show my thanks for them sharing the information and knowledge. And I turned it from a weakness into a strength. And I think everybody's got that uh, capability to turn around weaknesses into strengths. You know, and I think you've, you begin to scratch the surface here on another topic for another day, which we should probably do next time we talk, mentoring and mentorship. Thank you for clicking and thank you for listening. This is Policing Matters, the Police One podcast. I'm Doug Wiley, Editor-in-Chief of Police One. Hi, welcome back. This is Jim Dudley. Jim, back in 2012, way, way, way back in 2012, the ICP reported that at that time, 75% of agencies were using social media for some degree of investigative work. Um, and that's 75% of those surveyed. I'm really not familiar with how many surveyed. I believe it was in the neighborhood of 600 agencies. Now that's, in, in four, four years of internet time is an awfully long time. So you fast forward to today, four years hence, you have to imagine that the use of, you know, internet searches on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and, and all of the other social media sites has to be increased considerably across the country. I, I know from having some exposure to a couple of the solutions that are automated that help investigators kind of do this really hands off. Um, that you really just sort of set up some parameters, whether it's geofencing or um, you know setting up searches for certain hashtags, you know for known known gang um, uh, affiliations, for example, or you know hashtag payback or you know those types of those types of uh, search tools and uh, information just sort of pours into your desktop. That's that's one of the ways in which this stuff is happening out there. But another one that's important is. You know, just good old-fashioned investigative work, good old-fashioned police work done by individuals, you know, really fishing around on the Internet, looking at the people, the known, you know, known offenders, looking at their websites. It's commonplace for, for some of these folks, particularly gang members, to, to post, you know, highly incriminating and oftentimes hilarious um, photos of themselves with, the, you know, the guns, the drugs, the money, the, the whatever the booty they've gotten. Um, famously, a woman, um, I believe it was in Florida a couple of years ago, uh, posted a, a, um, a periscope, which is another of the social media type capabilities. It's a video type thing. Posted a periscope of herself um, driving drunk. Um, now, periscope is live, so the cops knew that this was happening right then. <laughs> and so 20 minutes later, she's in jail. Nice. Uh, I mean, that's, you know, criminal. If, if, if it weren't for dumb criminals, we'd be kind of a little bit bored sometimes, right? Absolutely. If, even two months ago, we had the. The armed robbery pair, the uh, male-female duo, completely tatted out. And the guy uh, puts, I believe it was on Facebook, puts, puts uh, post pictures of himself after just robbing a bank with a wad of money in his mouth holding a gun. And uh, needless to say, with all the tattoos on his face, he was identified pretty quickly and summarily arrested and prosecuted. It's it, it, it's sort of astounding at how stupid sometimes these folks are. But, you know, let's let's also 
give credit to the officers who are really paying attention to this stuff. I mean, if 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 the if these resources, investigative capabilities, were ignored, you know, then you know you might have that guy getting away with a little bit more than he he did. But you know, we've got people um, who are very very savvy internet users, Facebook users, Instagram. They they they're particularly our younger generation officers, and many of the officers in kind of the older generation who are getting really into it. Um, you know, by virtue of uh, practice and, and on their own self, uh, you know, they're, they're being creative and, you know, like, for example, posing as someone else on the Internet and sending out, you know, friend requests and what have you. You, you have the ability to, to, to get a lot of information because these folks are posting it. It's public. It's not, you know, it's, I've said this for many years. My space is not your space. It's the public space. Once you post it on MySpace, for example, uh, which I don't even know, frankly, still exists, um, or, or any of these sites, it's no longer yours, it's everybody's. And I, I certainly, and I can't talk about, and I'm sure we shouldn't talk about a lot of investigative means that uh, law enforcement agencies are using to, to ferret out these uh, criminals, but um, we started out pretty well with uh, tracking devices and things like the Stingray and, and cell phone trackers that over time, um, maybe it was abuse or overuse that restricted their use. That they were found to be Fourth Amendment violation searches. And so now a lot of things that we used to do that we now are required to, to gain a search warrant for. Uh, the use of drones could be, I'm sure it's already within that category. If you obtain a vantage point that is uh, other than what would normally be a uh, public viewing space, then it's going to be deemed a search and we're going to have to get a, a search warrant for, for using a, um, a, a drone. So I, I, think, I think, on the other hand, I think there's a, uh, a great horizon out there with uh, biometrics becoming used more and more to identify faces, guns, mm. drugs and money, cars, uh, things of that nature. And um, it'll only be a matter of time before we can uh, plug in alerts uh, into our computers and tell them what we're looking for, and these things will pop up for us. And, and I, you know, the future is now. Uh, only back in 2012, when I originally wrote uh, on this topic, um, there were only, to my knowledge, two really sad, you know, good, if you will, offerings that do the automated searches and do that. I didn't. I don't know if they even did the biometric face matching at the time, but that stuff is beginning to really happen now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I'll not not to endorse any one or uh, other over the, the next, but I'll name a few names here just so if you're out there, you're interested in trying to get some of these automated resources that can help you in your investigations. I'll just name a couple of them that are out there. Um, LexisNexis uh, is in combination with Digital Stakeout. They have a solution. Uh, which I've seen had some exposure to snap trends I'm not as familiar with. Um, there's one from Signal, uh, which is good. Uh, Life Raft, um, I'm a little bit familiar with, and, and one called Emotive, which is specifically looking at um, Twitter. And all of these, you know, now we're, we're talking about adding, of course, resources, which means, of course, budgeting for them and all of that. But, you know, when you start looking at how um, some of the automated systems can be beneficial to your investigation without a ton of heavy lifting on the part of your investigators. You know, you put in the parameters first, you put in the geolocations. So for example, you geofence known gang areas, you know, so in our city of San Francisco, you know, we know there are certain gangs in certain areas and the turf and the borders have been established for years. You know, they're being fought over all the time, but 
they're pretty well established. You can geofence in, the, in this, these systems. You know, when someone posts something from a known gang member in, a, in foreign gang territory, posts something to the internet with the term hashtag payback, you probably should send some enforcement out there to see if we can prevent that from happening or at least be, you know, the most rapid, rapid responders there are. Sure. And it would be awesome to be able to use those things in a real time format and not post incident. I think that's happening. Uh, you said it's here already. I, I think with I think we're, we're opening doors to the cyber frontier um, with the FBI cracking the iPhone uh, with decryption methods um, being discovered by law enforcement, federal and local. I think um, we're going to have more access. I think we just have to tread carefully mm -hmm. and make sure we don't uh, make any milestone cases that change the way we do investigations. I think we're going to have just a tremendous amount of material uh, that will make investigations easier. I just, I just uh, think we have to be careful not to abuse them. And we've seen it in the past. We've seen that, you know, the, the old adage, bad cops make bad laws. We, we overuse some methods and, and we end up losing them or, or get extremely restricted. So uh, the information is out there. I think anytime that you get the, quote, free app on your phone, it's only as free as far as how much information you put down and it makes you trackable. So when you do a search for uh, something you're interested in buying, a bow and arrow set or hiking boots or a snorkel, and the next time you get on your device, your iPad, iPhone, tablet, laptop, and all of a sudden you start to see advertisement for the things that you've been searching, that is a clue hmm. that says they're tracking your behavior on the net. Yeah. And you know the thing the thing though with the with the with the social media in particular. Now we're not talking about, you know, um to use an old term, hacking into someone's computer and getting onto their device without their knowledge. We're talking about stuff that they have of their own volition sent out into the world. You know, it's as if they're standing in the middle of the street screaming, I just robbed a bank, which right. is this guy with the with a wad of cash in his face, you know, tattooed face, you know, days after he just robbed a bank. Right. You know, it's effectively the same thing. So it's plain view, if you will, evidence that's just really difficult to find because of the massive volume of it. Sure. So it's it's finding those needles in the haystack. You can doing it again manually as a really good investigator, knowing some of your suspects, digging deep into their Facebook pages if you have access to them, of course, um, and uh, and then using some of these automated type systems to allow those little spiders out there on the internet to go and find those little clues and those hard to find little nooks and crannies mm -hmm. of the internet, yeah. and then automatedly send them to your inbox so you can then do the work of following up and investigating as to whether or not that's a, a real lead or if that's just, a, you know, it's just another thing that didn't turn into something. Sure. And, and don't get me wrong. When I when I say uh, the court may eventually weigh in on whether or not something's a search or not, I think you have um, civil libertarians out there who claim that an ALPR, an automated license plate reader, may be deemed a search. Mm -hmm. I don't agree with that because, like you say, if a car is parked on a public street or if you go through a toll booth or a bridge and an ALPR picks up a license plate in a location, and it can be used later as evidence or uh, part of a conviction, then I think it's it's open source. So you're in plain view. I mean, if you're in plain view, you have very diminished expectation of privacy. Now, if we're in my home, your home, um, you know, certainly we can't have means by which without a warrant, 
you know, information is being gleaned through the walls or through, you know, some other such technological capability. That requires a warrant. That's a Fourth Amendment violation if you try and do that. But if you're out there on the sidewalk in front of your house, you know, where people, passers-by, you know, people who are um, in, in neighboring homes can witness you doing one thing or the next, you should not have a reasonable expectation of privacy up to the curtilage of your home. I'm with you. All right. Well, we're going to take it and call that one a day. Jim, I'll talk to you again real soon. Take care.